Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, Islanders. I hope you're all doing well. And yes, the theme is back for a short while as trying to get clearance to use it on the audio version of the podcast is being met with silence. So it will remain on the YouTube until music man Andrew can come up with another one. A quick shout out to Mia Morris, who had a fight with some machinery the other day and came off second best thoughts and prayers from the island to you, Mia. Now, let's get stuck into it. When judges ponder over sentencing young offenders, they do take their youth into account. And even for the most heinous of crimes, the problem is, even with a long sentence, these criminals can get out when relatively young. And some will go on to repeat their crimes. This week is the carbon copy killer, Barry Gordon Hadlow. Now, a bit of a trigger warning. This episode involves the murder of two little girls. Tonight, I will reference Paul B. Kidd's book, Never To Be Released. Now, you may remember me referencing this book a few times before, and I really recommend you buy it. It goes over many crimes in reasonable depth, more than I can do here, and Paul is a great true crime author. And it's easy to buy on Google Books or Kindle. I'll also reference the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Canberra Times and The Western Star. And thanks to my Patreon and PayPal contributors for my newspapers.com subscription. And thanks to Dion for sending me some court records the other day. Thanks, mate. Now, back in the day, and even back in my day, which isn't quite that far back, kids, even toddlers, would be in the front yards of houses playing. The older ones would go to the local shop for mum or dad to buy smokes, milk, bread, lollies, whatever, and it was no big deal. It wasn't really even seen as a high-risk thing. Now, sure, there were predators around just like today, but rather than security cameras... Most family were single income. Usually dad went to work and mum stayed at home. When the kids got a bit older, mum might get some part-time work. But this is the norm back then. And because there were so many people at home during the day, there were a lot of eyes rather than security cameras keeping an eye on things. So those predators that may have been in the community had to be very careful if they tried to prey on young kids. Also, the population wasn't that high back in suburban Australia back when we're going to in the 60s. So statistically, there were less predators around. I guess another thing was that people tended to know each other in the community a lot more. I feel we're a bit more isolated today, even though we are better connected than ever before. Now back then, if there was someone who wasn't quite right or a bit creepy... It would get around. So this sense of safety wasn't that there weren't predators around. It came about more from the way the community had evolved. Now anyway, let's get back to the 24th of November 1962. 
South Townsville in FNQ or far north Queensland. Here the Bacon family lived in Tully Street near the port of Townsville, Townsville, north of Ross River. Now, and get this for a name, this is a great name, Don Bradman Bacon. His wife Eunice and their five kids lived in the typical working class suburban house. The Bacon family had plenty of relos living close by and they would often get together on the weekends. Now, five-year-old Sandra Bacon was the second youngest of the kids or the youngest. I can't be certain because in Paul B's B Kids book, Never To Be Released, she's described as the second youngest, but in his other book, Australian Serial Killers, he says she's the youngest. Anyway, she's only five years old. And on this lovely Saturday morning, her grandma was preparing a family lunch and Sandra was asked to go and get her sister. Now, Sandra went down the street and she turned into Archer Street that formed a T-junction at the end of Tully Street. It's here that 20-year-old labourer Barry Gordon Hadlow was sitting on his front veranda. Now, Hadlow had experienced a difficult childhood. He was overweight and stupid. At school, he was a bully and was hated upon by students and teachers alike. Because of his troublemaking, he was shifted from school to school and the teachers were happy to see him move on. When he saw little five-year-old Sandra approaching, he called out to her. Now, Sandra told him that she was looking for a sister and he replied, Well, when you find her, could you give her these? And then he held up some comic books. He then told her to come inside with him as he had more comics inside. Sandra followed him into the house and straight away Hadlow pounced. He stripped her of her clothes, he lay her on his bed and held his hand over her mouth to stop her from screaming. He then sexually assaulted her but Sandra kept screaming. Hadlow then wrapped his hands around her throat, pushing his thumbs in deep to try and block her windpipe. Now Sandra fought as hard as a five-year-old could, she tried to stay alive. When Hadlow tried as hard as he could to kill her but she wouldn't die, he picked up a hunting knife that was next to his bed and stabbed Sandra through the heart. Now, when Sandra failed to return from looking for her sister, the family called around to all the places she usually may have gone or they thought she may have been, but they couldn't find her. Now, she had last been seen at 4.30pm. At 7pm, with no sign of Sandra, the police were called and in no time... There were 300-odd people out searching for her. Now, at one stage, Hadlow came out to search and he approached David Bacon. Now, I'm not sure. I think he was an uncle. And Hadlow tried to console him. Now, Hadlow said, I can sympathise with you once my brother went missing for four days. He then said that maybe she'd fallen in the river and had been eaten by sharks or that she'd been snatched by a childless couple. He then said, and this would be weird even in the moment, he said, maybe Sandra has been murdered and her body hidden in the boot of a car. Now, not only is this weird, creepy, distressing, awkward and inappropriate, but it would prove to be right on the money. Hadlow, after murdering Sandra, put a body in a bag or more like a sack and left it in the boot of a car parked outside his house. She would be found there two days later. 
Now, Hadlow had fled at this stage, but he didn't get far. Friends of Hadlow had been told where he was going and police picked him up quickly. He said to them, Where have you been? I've been expecting you. And yes, I killed her. On the way back to the police station in the back of the car, Hadlow complained that his thumbs were sore from pressing on Sandra's neck. Now he would confess to police that he sat on the bed wondering what to do with her. She was out of it, but not dead. He said, so I got my bowie knife and stabbed her in the heart to finish her off. He then hit a body in the boot of the car and get this, he then took some of the local kids to the movies. <sighs> now this pretty much freaked out the community of Townsville at the time. Nothing like this had happened before. Parents kept a closer eye on the kids after this happened and not like shit like this had never happened before anywhere. I mean, we have nursery rhymes and children's stories from hundreds of years ago that were used to frighten kids and make them aware that not all is good in the world. I suppose now we call it stranger danger. At his trial in 1963, he would be found guilty and sentenced to life. Now, the law at the time would let Hadlow apply for parole after 13 years. Now, after quite a rocky start to his sentence where other prisoners would abuse him, it all seemed to settle down and he became a Christian and followed all the rules. Now, after 22 and a half years, Hadlow was granted parole and released in 1985. So by my reckoning, he would have been about 44 years old at this stage. He would meet and marry mother of eight, Leonie Moody, and they would get married. Now, Leonie was aware that he had murdered someone, but whether or not she knew it was a five-year-old girl is disputed. She reckons she didn't know. But one of her daughters, Sherelle Moody, says the opposite, that her mother was well aware of the fact that he murdered a five-year-old girl. Now, I believe Sherelle. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, in 1990, Hadlow and Leonie, plus four of her daughters, were living in Roma, about 400 kilometres northwest of Brisbane, when nine-year-old Stacey Ann Tracy went missing on her way to school on the 22nd of May. Now, on the morning of this 22nd of May, Stacey Ann left the Queen's Arms Hotel where her family was staying. Now, she did this with her younger sister, seven-year-old Elizabeth to go to the Roma Middle School. She dropped her sister at the Junior State School in Bowen Street and continued on, turning into Cottle Street, where she was last seen alive. She did not arrive at school. Now, when it was realised Stacey Ann was missing, police were called in and a search was underway. Now, Barry Hadlow again volunteered to help search for her. Now, he goes up to police and tells them that Stacey Ann was unhappy with her home life and that she intended to run away from her stepfather. I mean, what the fucking fucking fuck? I mean, locals who knew of Hadlow tipped police off that he should be looked at closely and after doing a bit of background check on him, they kept him under surveillance. Now, on the 25th of May, her school bag and umbrella were found in bushland just off the Surat Road in the general area of the intersection with Warrego Highway. And later that day, a plastic garbage bag was found on the banks of Bungill Creek, close to the old Surat Road near the intersection, again, of the Warrego Highway. The bag contained a green pillow and some sheets. 
Now, her body was found on the 26th of May 1990 in Bushland off Miss Scamble Street on the banks of this Bungle Creek, and that's east of Roma. She was wrapped in a plastic rubbish bag from the waist down and was still dressed in her school uniform. She died of strangulation and suffocation. A rope was knotted around her neck and her pants were forced down her throat. She'd been sexually assaulted. Now, Hadlow would be questioned in the afternoon of the 29th of May. and Later that night, he was charged with murder, deprivation of liberty, child stealing and indecent assault. Now, I'll just go over some of the evidence investigators were able to get. Now, on Stacey Ann's body was a torn piece of paper. Maybe it had been in the rubbish bag she was wrapped in. But when police searched Hadlow's place... They found the other part of the torn paper. The page was identified as being in the handwriting of Hadlow's wife, Leonie, and related to darts scores of a social darts game played during the time when Hadlow and his family resided in Toowoomba. Witnesses had seen Hadlow in the areas where her belongings and the bag containing the pillow and bedsheets had been found. The sheets found in the garbage bag were identified by Sherelle Moody, the stepdaughter of Hadlow, as sheets which she had purchased in 1986 in Longreach. At that time, she was working on a station called Tarcombe, and she said that she took the sheets to Hadlow's home in Toowoomba in 1987 when he and his wife were residing there before moving to Roma. The sheets, she said, were left at the Toowoomba place, and she saw them in Roma in the linen closet at Hadlow's place in Charles Street. Now, there was medical evidence that vomit was found on the sheets and vomit was also found in the esophagus of Stacey Ann. In statements to the police, Leone, that's Hadlow's wife, identified the sheets as coming from her household. She repeated this during the committal proceedings. But at the trial, she denied that she'd seen the sheets before. Lone bitch. I mean, hostile witness, your honour. Now, Hadley knew Stacey Ann and her sister as on the morning of the 22nd of May, it was raining and he drove some kids who lived next door to him to school. Now, they were friends of Stacey Ann and Hadlow stopped off at the Queen's Arm Hotel to see if they wanted a lift, but they'd already left for school. So Hadlow knew Stacey Ann was on her way to school. Now, he's probably dropped off the kids from next door and then saw Stacey Ann walking in the rain. He pulls over and she gets in the car. Now, she'd probably seen Hadlow around often, so she probably didn't see him as a threat. Now, hold on to your rage. So we can be sure that Hadlow at this point lured Stacey Ann into his car and he drives home. There's no witnesses to seeing Stacey Ann go into his house, so she may have done it willingly at this point. Maybe he'd promised us something, I don't know. But shortly after, there is a witness that sees something which I would call alarming. Now, it's from a Mr Quinlan that lived at 14 Queen Street. Apparently, this is next door to Hadlow. He told investigators that he returned home at around 8.30am after taking his son to Roma Middle School and while having a cup of tea, heard loud noises coming from the flat next door. He said he was standing at the kitchen bench, gazing out the back window, 
when he saw a young girl run away from the back of the flat, closely followed by a person who he believed was Hadlow. The girl was grabbed on the shoulder by the man and pulled backwards to the flat. Now, Mr Quinlan did not see either of them after that observation. He described the girl as about the same age and size as his son, who had just turned nine and was not particularly tall. Now, he must be describing Stacey Ann and Hadley. So did Stacey Ann try to flee once she realised Hadlow's intentions? Now, why didn't Quin- Quinlan go and find out what was going on or call police? Now, I don't want to throw Quinlan under the bus for this. When he saw the girl run out the back and then grabbed by Hadlow, maybe it didn't look to him to be that much of a big deal. Maybe he just thought it was a father bringing in his kid as Hadlow was living at the house with his wife and four of her kids. Now, his stepkids were probably at school at this time. But where was his wife? Now, Hadlow would be convicted of murder and jailed for life. At the end of the trial, Hadlow yelled out to the judge, It's the greatest travesty of justice since Christ was crucified on the cross. He was crucified with lies too. You couldn't lie straight in bed, you bastard. And to the police and warders present, he said, or shouted, or screamed, or ranted, They'll get theirs, lying dogs. Their lies will bring them down. Now, a couple of disturbing things would come out of the trial. Because Hadlow's previous conviction for murdering Sandra Bacon could not be brought up in court, neither could the psychiatric report they did on him at the time. It said that further sex crimes would occur if Hadlow were not kept in a safe place. Now, that means prison. The doctor said there was no treatment for his condition. Now, the psychiatric reports that were presented at his parole hearing, well, they said the opposite. They detailed that Hadlow was probably immature with some schizoid feature when he raped and murdered five-year-old Sandra Bacon. They claimed that it was unlikely Hadlow would be any trouble in the future. Now, a prison chaplain, he wrote in 1984 when Hadlow applied for work release that he had become a Christian and partakes in church and Bible studies and that he is a wiser and sadder man. I mean, what the fucking fuck is this guy on about? He raped and murdered a five-year-old girl. But the judge in the second trial said that he recommended that Hadlow never be released from jail and he slammed the prison authorities for releasing him in 1985. He said to Hadlow at the end of the trial, and I'll quote, It's quite apparent that a dreadful mistake was made in releasing you from prison in 1985. Your case is a salutary reminder of those members of the community who believe that convicted persons should not be kept in custody. From what I read in the press and see and hear of discussions on the radio and on TV, some members of the community seem to think that instead of sentencing, that you were safe to be released. But I suspect that probably one of your weaknesses is small girls, and despite having given the impression you are a model prisoner, it will be fair to say that as small girls are not in prison, any weaknesses you had was not going to be exposed. I just cannot understand how anyone who had the opportunity of seeing the psychiatric report following the Townsville murder could ever have allowed you to be released in 1985. It is my recommendation 
that you never be released. Now also, Sherelle Moody, Hadlow's stepdaughter, and Leonie Hadlow's daughter at the time, was scathing of her mother in the way she stood by him. Sherelle is an award-winning journalist and has since created the Red Heart Campaign. The Red Heart Campaign commemorates all lives lost to murder and manslaughter while working to end all forms of violence, including domestic and family abuse, rape and sexual violence, and neglect. Now, please check out the Red Heart Campaign on Facebook. There's plenty of other links from there. Now, Sherelle, she wrote a piece in the Western Star in 2018, and I'll read this out directly from there. My mother married Barry Gordon Hadlow despite knowing he was on parole for killing five-year-old Sandra Dorothy Bacon in Townsville. My mother had four young daughters living in a Townsville household when Hadlow moved in. A few years later, he killed nine-year-old Stacey Ann Tracy in Roma and my mother chose to stand by his side. She refused to speak to police when they came knocking on the door. She watched as Hadlow helped the local community search for the child. She stood up for him as he was arrested and charged. She gave interviews defending him. Now, Leonie Hadlow said, My husband is innocent. He wouldn't hurt anyone. I trust him more than anyone else in the world, and I still do. Now, fuck's sake, some people really have some denial problems. Now, that piece was written by Sherelle because of the way Julian Thorburn stood back and did nothing, protecting her husband and son after the rape and murder of 12-year-old Tia Lee Palmer, who was in their foster care, and that's a case I've covered before. I did reach out to Sherelle, but very late in my research, in fact, only yesterday, and at the time of writing, she's not got back to me, so there may be an update to this episode in the near future. So there you go, Islanders. Hadlow, nothing but maggot scum, rapes and murders a five-year-old girl, helps in searching for her, approaches police with his theories on what happened. He dumps a body in a sack in the boot of a car, then tries to run off. He gets caught, becomes a Christian, and plays the good guy and gets out at only 44 years of age, even though a psychiatrist report says he's going to do it again if he's released. As there's no treatment for his perversion. They let him out, and a few years later, he does a carbon copy kill. He rapes and murders nine-year-old Stacy Ann Tracy, dumps a body in the bush, again helps police search for her and gives them his theories on where she might be, then protests his innocence, even though all the evidence point to him as being the perpetrator. No remorse, so we as a society should treat him the same. He should never have been released, and no one that commits such a crime, especially against someone so young, they should never expect to be or have any right to be part of society again. I mean, fuck it. If some half-wit psychiatrist or psychologist says he's rehabilitated, fuck it. Lock the maggot away forever. In general prison population, not in protective custody. I mean, fuck him and anyone who stands by these monsters. So I say, hope the karma bus does the boomfuckalunga to him straight to hell. And Hadlow went there in 2007 to the relief of many. Now sorry for the rage, but these things do bring it on. 
it's a little bit hard to sort of segue to the end of the show, but it is at the end of the show, and as it, as it is, let's get to the patron, and thanks to all my past, present, and new patrons for your financial support. It does make a huge difference as True Crime Island is commercial free for all. Thanks to Justin Bedox. Thank you so much. It's very much appreciated. And if you want to join Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, it's patreon.com forward slash true crime island. If you don't like the monthly thing, you can also donate to PayPal. And thanks to Dion, who sent me a generous donation for my wedding, actually. And he also sent me the court record I used tonight. So thanks, mate. Uh, the PayPal link is donate.truecrimeisland.com or paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Now, as I say, support yourself before you support the island. Now, I have merch at Threadless and Redbubble. Go to Redbubble and search for True Crime Island. There are links on my YouTube channel. Just search for True Crime Island and feel free to like, subscribe and comment there, please. Hit the little bell for notifications. I usually release the YouTube version the day after the audio version, sometimes the same day. All depends what I do. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing and also by sharing it with your friends and family. All the links, including social media, are on my website, truecrimeisland.com. Please feel free to check out my YouTube channel. I know I go on a little bit about it. If you can subscribe also, I think there's going to be a giveaway at 1,000 subs. So, a bit more motivation to go there and have a look. If you want to contact me directly also, the best way is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. I do get sometimes the Facebook messages, the Twitter messages get a little bit messed up and I don't get them all. I try to reply to everybody, but sometimes you know how it is. Okay, that's about it. So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Kumfakalanga. Kumfakalanga.